Hello everyone, I'm Jen and welcome to another episode of Monogamous Pod. On this week's episode, I am starting my series, sort of, about religion and polyamory. This episode is part one of that series and it features a conversation between myself and Shams, who is a South Asian Muslim man who is also polyamorous, which is kind of obvious based on the title of the series, I guess. But this is such a fantastic conversation. He and I kind of go a lot of places with this. He even asks me some questions, which I definitely had to keep in for context of this episode. So without further ado, here's the conversation with Shams. So I have Shams here with me today to help kick off this conversation about polyamory and religion. Why don't you tell the people who you are? So my name is Shams. I'm 36. And I'd like to start by acknowledging that I live on unceded stolen land. I'm located in Toronto, which is on the territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, the Anishinaabe, and the Haudenosaunee. I'm grateful to be here. And I'm really grateful to be taking part in this podcast from this location. I'm an educator. I'm a sexuality and gender advocate, consent educator, and artist. I'd like to acknowledge my privilege. I have cishet privilege, male privilege. I'm able-bodied, able-speeched, and I'm South Asian and Muslim, and I'm polyamorous. So, hi. Wow, I love that. Thank you for including that. I appreciate it. And... Muslim and polyamorous. Now, for some people, these two things go together. I do know some people who are like, oh, yeah, like Muslims are all about having multiple wives. We know that. I'm like, do we, though? Do we? Mm-hmm. That's OK. That's what we're here to unpack a little bit today. But first, I want to start talking about your journey to polyamory. Were you exposed to polyamory when you were younger? Is it something you grew up around, something you saw in other people, but not in your own family? What is your experience with polyamory when you were younger a wee one if you will almost zero to be honest like I would say the waters I grew up swimming in and continue to swim in are very monogamous and mononormative and there's like the very South Asian and the very Muslim cultural kinds of things intersecting to create a very like your existence is just to meet one other person and reproduce that's kind of the messaging yeah only one other person that that's the goal it's yeah you're going to meet this person you're going to make more of you and it's going to be great that's it yeah and you're going to fulfill your obligation to your parents and your aunts and uncles and ancestors Mm. but what does that obligation look like now i'm curious about how this (laughs) plays out what is the obligation to your parents and your aunts and uncles is this like a financial obligation is this a give me lots of babies to to play with obligation it's like the it comes from a very this is your duty to me and it will not be fulfilled. The pact is not fulfilled. I brought you into this world. I'm obviously taking it like to the extra end of the spectrum on it. But yeah, it's very much my mom would we would go to weddings and my mom would tap me on the shoulder and be like, hey, that auntie over there has three grandchildren and she's younger than me. And I was, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to just like knock up a stranger? She's like, I don't care what you do. Wow. Okay. My, my mother does not just, feel the same way. There's a bit of play there too. Like mm-hmm. we joke a lot and I do give my opinions on like having children or relationships. There's not a lot of information that streams my parents' way or family way in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. It just because of my age, I'm like prime for the last five years. I'm prime for the picking. Every People are asking about me. <laughs> they want to know if I'm single and I just avoid every conversation. Prime for the picking. Okay. Yeah. Basically, if you're in your over 25 and single, mm-hmm. you're prime for the picking. 
Yeah. But also, Shams is hot. Just want to let y'all know. Just, oh, just put that happening here. There's no one's gonna little, see it. <laughs> kind of hot. You know, I don't refuse if we talk about happy fun here, but there is an attractiveness there. So I was like, prime for the picking. I can definitely see that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I can definitely see that. Okay, so obviously, have you fulfilled your duty to your family? I guess that's the first question. No, I mean, no. I've been pretty vocal about marriage not being important to me like to family members just as like the institution to me it doesn't make a difference if I'm married to someone it shouldn't change the level of commitment but I tend to be more vocal around weddings because I also get like the your next one or when's it coming up and I'm like I just I don't ah yeah I can imagine that's not going over as well as we hoped with all the people but it's okay it's okay yeah so coming back to that kind of like duty or it's a very I think it's just kind of part of the communal structure of how things are expected to go with everyone. You just grow up and you get a job and you find a significant other. So I, di- I didn't know any better growing up. And I, and the only exposure, like, from a religious point of view, so on the religious side, I grew up attending, like, the Saturday classes every week growing up. So you learn about everything in our history, you learn about rites and rituals, and there's a lot of community and you mess around with your friends. And then I also studied religion in university and at the master's level. So I have a decent amount of understanding from like different perspectives. And the one thing that always comes up is this idea of polygamy, right? And that's having multiple wives when a man has multiple wives and the prophet was polygamous and had multiple wives. And that was always like the big question mark but what about this and he's our example and even as a person like from a point of curiosity i would ask my like my professors and stuff about this because it was confusing for me no one really knows how to address it but when you look at in the verses in the quran where it says something about four wives i don't know the exact verse but what i was taught is actually keep reading go on to like the next verse or the one after but just keep reading but like after that and there's like a statement where it says that no man can actually so it's like The first statement is you can have four wives if you can treat them equally, like thumbs up. And then when you read further down, it's like, well, it's not possible to actually treat four women equally and satisfy them all and in a whatever way. So it's nullified within that. I'm not going to get into the prophet and his life and his choices. That's, again. I mean, the prophet be doing what he doing, okay? That's, That's the prophet's life. But it's interesting that you say that because a lot of people do hang on to this idea. Muslims are polygamous. Everyone knows that. Every good Muslim man has multiple wives and is allowed to do this thing. And they forget that other part of the statement where you said where it's if you can treat them all equally. And that means that, financially is included in that like you you don't just get to have four random women call themselves your wives and one wife has a bmw the other one has a saturn like that they all have to be treated at the same equal level but i think that a lot of people miss that part of it like if you're following that just that sentence specifically there is a lot of things that you also have to do there and in in my experiences when i've seen those setups it's usually like also the mother position of which child so like firstborn child mama she might get more privilege than like second or third but everyone i mean like as a muslim and being in the from the academic field for a bit of time and being like in community spaces everyone when it comes to religion like i believe when people just approach it sincerely they make it work for them like islam is just meant to be something that works for you in your life and historically a lot of people have been able to 
bend things like the words of the prophet known as the hadith to their whatever they want to their agenda and that's happened historically over time and there's systems in place to accredit people appropriately very misgendered and very like gender skewed like only one man's a one man's recount is the same as two women's and stuff like that. So there's all kinds of issues. Everyone can bend things the way they want. But I think when there's a sincere approach, you do things in a way that works for you. And that is from the heart and the soul and for the good of people. But if you get me talking about religion, it's really hard for me to stop. But I should probably share. I grew up in a like a liberal family, like politically liberal in a fairly, not fairly, but I would say a progressive Muslim community And I grew up being like encouraged to actively participate in my faith and in the community. So I volunteer a lot. Sometimes I didn't have a choice about my attendance. So like my parents are very regular in attendance and I was always encouraged. And, but I was always asking questions when I would go to the religious classes, I was asking questions and I was always like fighting with religion in a sense and like wanting to know everything about it because I was just never happy with the answers. So I would say like my relationship's always been really complicated with religion but one of the things that helps settle it is to like know the difference between religion and faith so do i participate in religious ceremonies voluntarily not really because they've never really fulfilled me spiritually and i had to really put that boundary down when it comes to family and expectations and myself and what makes me happy and what helps me progress spiritually faith-wise I do what works for me in terms of my own spiritual practice, in terms of what brings me happiness. But there was a point, many points where my participation or my existence in this space felt violent as someone who's trying to just explore myself and explore what relationships mean to me. And polyamory, non-monogamy was a big part of that. And it was clashing and I had no spaces to reconcile it. So growing up, polyamory was never part of my life, but neither was sex ed, neither was consent. What I really believe in as a consent educator is that Muslim spaces need to have safe spaces for people to talk about relationships and ethics, relationships, sex, pleasure. It's usually the work is done in what I call the shadows, like hush. That's when I've been able to do it when I'm working in Muslim communities and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah, it's been hard. Yeah, it sounds that way. So tell me about your first forays or explorations into non-monogamy. I know you said there was some clashing, of course, of religion and faith and this idea as you got into that particular phase in your life. When did you first start exploring non-monogamy, even just like intellectually, academically, and Uh then moving into actual practice? So I would say if I could like even go a step before that, like even knowing what non-monogamy was. So like before I knew what non-monogamy was, before I knew what polyamory was, I had issues in all of my relationships. I didn't have many to begin with, like in my 20s. So I started dating in my 20s. But for my first girlfriend onwards, I just some there was something wrong, like that I didn't understand that. So either we were mismatched in terms of uh, libido, which was often the case, or I felt really restrained in a monogamous setup, which was always the default. And I didn't like, I didn't understand what that meant. So I found myself emotionally getting liking other people and feeling really bad about it and like really chastising myself, being drawn to more than one person or dating someone and like having a crush on someone and that becoming an issue. Do you know what I mean? So that part of non-monogamy was terrible. So I just had a string of like relationships that would just like end because the model never worked. 
the flexibility was never there. And I never, I think as I aged as well, but because monogamy is the default, I never really had like the communication skills. I didn't really know how to like work on my own, like inner self to express what I wanted. And so I would say in my late twenties, I would, I started to just know something was wrong with like how I'm doing dating. And I think I started getting the language about five to seven years ago. And that was just mind blowing, like being introduced to the ethical slut, like more than two. I know it's all like white people stuff, but that's all that's out there. We know why, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Now we have Adrian Marie Brown and Kevin Patterson. And like, it's great. And we have people like you and all the Instagram people, but there was like nothing. There was nothing back then that really spoke to the experience of South Asian people, BIPOC people. And I was late to the scene. So I'd say like it took, so in the in my last, maybe like, couple of relationships in my 20s, late 20s and early 30s, I would take more chances when I'm dating people. And I would start like asking if they might be open to opening up the relationship or non-monogamy. And that was really scary because it got shut down all the time. So then I stopped, like I actually shut myself down because I thought happiness is with this person. And if this person is not into this, then I'm just going to do whatever they want. And then there was a period where I just tried to like date four or five people at the same time like in my maybe five four or five years ago and I just meant I was sleeping with four people at the same time so I didn't really know how to do it I had no mentors I had no one there was I was living in a town where it was like quite small and white and not many people I want to get involved with and I would say really like non-monogamously with intent I've started dating two to three years ago and a big part of that is because of my partner and her bringing it up because we started dating living together and I wasn't going to say anything I wasn't going to say anything straight up and she brought it up she's hey remember how we talked about non-monogamy should we like try it (laughs) do you want to do this and I was like oh okay are you sure I was just going to ignore that because that's how I'm programmed so I would say like in the last two to two to three years and really in the last year have I been actively polyamorous so I feel like there's a difference when I'm non-monogamous Versus being like quite emotionally involved with with more. It's like, in a sense, you need that permission from someone that you loved to be able to open yourself up more emotionally, right? Wow. Big time. I get that. Well, in in a different way for me, I didn't grow up religious for people who may or may not remember scatterings of conversation. Religion was a part of my life because all of the schools that I went to were Methodist and United schools. And daily Christian devotion. Like you had to go to devotion every single day. The only people allowed to sit outside of that were the Jehovah's witnesses even. Mm. And I guess we, I don't think we even had any Jewish kids at my school for us to even be like, Oh yeah, Jewish kids can sit out too. No, it was just like Jehovah's witnesses. And there was only like maybe two in the entire school. So they didn't have to participate. Lucky people, but we had to do it every morning. We had to do the things and the rites and the rituals. And I didn't grow up going to church but I did have to go occasionally. And then weddings and funerals don't count. Those are just like specific experiences. I will tell you, I did go to a funeral when I was in university and it really upset me because there was a portion of time where it's a funeral where mourning the loss of someone that we knew very well and also trying to be at peace with the fact that they're onto a better place or whatever that means. And the minister is just preaching about how that she's lucky that she had given her life to God and how there are some people in this room who need to do the same thing. And I was like, is now an appropriate time to be talking about this? 
I'm here bawling my eyes out because someone that I know has passed on and you're like, yeah, you heathens need to give your lives to God so you can be one of us here at the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I'm like, or you could suck it. How about that? You could suck it. Who recruits at a funeral? That's what I I just thought it was so rude (laughs) to do that. And it's also probably because I didn't grow up going to church regularly. So these are not things that I'm just used to hearing all the time, but... it seemed normal for everyone else. And I was like, this is normal to y'all. This is normal. This is, this seems okay to you. I had to step outside. I was like, no, I'm going to start just screaming and never stop. So let's go. But yeah. <laughs> I was exposed to religion in that way. Forced. We had to participate. Yeah. We had to go through the motions. You had to have your hymn book every day. If you didn't have it, you'd get in trouble and things like that. But, and we didn't mandatory religious education which is basically like we studied Christianity and then vaguely looked at other religions that exist in the world. So like yeah. we knew that other religions existed, but that wasn't the focus, so to speak. As someone who, who didn't grow up with like religion playing a big part in your life and as someone who is doing really important work for BIPOC polyamorous people, why are you focusing on religion? And I'm really grateful that you are and I'm curious. So why religion polyamory? It's such an interesting dynamic in the sense where I talk to a lot of people who are non-monogamous or exploring those things and polyamorous. And one of the things that keep butting up against is their religious upbringings and how to live the life they want authentically while acknowledging that the religious structure they grew up in doesn't allow for them to be that but it doesn't mean they can't still have faith and believe if that makes sense. Yeah. So it happens a lot. And there's in the polyamorous community and I just had a, I just had a conversation with someone about this the other night, even like how sex negative some people appear to be in the polyamorous community. And a lot of that being tied to religious trauma, religious upbringings, like the things that you mentioned, there is no sex ed. And if you are in certain segments of Christianity, there is no birth control. You are not allowed to use birth control. So what does that look like for you, knowing that you are not fitting in with the mold of your church and your life and what that looks like? And one of my exes raised Catholic. And so that was something that we talked a bit about in the beginning of our relationship. We were also in our early 20s. And really, no one was focused on Jesus. We were focused on fucking. So there was that part of it. And a lot of the friends that I had growing up when I was exploring my sexuality, being bisexual at the time, pansexual now, because terms change, et cetera, and exploring non-monogamy, they were always looking at me like I was disgusting. And if I was a different person, that would have hurt my feelings. (laughs) But I had clearly segmented religious ideals from what they actually believe of me in my mind already. Maybe it was delusion. Maybe it's Maybelline. Who knows? But I didn't have that line in between who I wanted to be and who I actually was or who I was raised to be. And I see so many people struggling with that. And I want to talk more about how these things can intersect and how you can still be polyamorous and whatever religion you were raised to be, because doesn't your higher power love everybody? Isn't that kind of the point? (laughs) So why would they shame you for these things? Yeah. And we have to, we have to be able to hold these identities in the same space or else like how can we have a good existence like how can life like how can we live with any kind of pleasure and like this whole thing of faith I'm really careful about my words because I grew up Muslim and I do identify as Muslim and I will 
throw the gloves down for anyone that says shit about Muslims. Like I will be ready to fight. Doesn't mean that I'm actively practicing. Doesn't mean that I won't go back to it. Nothing is finite, but I've had to really carve out a space to find happiness in faith and my own spiritual practice. And the funny thing is it took me walking away from everything, my community, some sometimes my family, just to find the space to explore who I am as a non-monogamous polyamorous person, which is hard. But I think it's so important that if religion, like religion fucks everyone up, it's clear. Even if you participate, even if you don't, because you end up hating mm-hmm. it, hate religious people. And that's fine. We're not going to, I'm not here to please anyone and say that religion's great. Like it's tough because it, the sex negativity existed in me. The repression was in me and it, and it sucks. Like it took, I started unlearning when I was probably 30 and I'm still unlearning so much of that. But if people can find some kind of like personal peace or faith practices that work for them and they come from a religious background, I think it's good. Break away from the mold and do what works for you. If it works for you, it's saving lives. Like Mm-hmm. I grew up in a community where anyone that looked different or had boys playing with girls' toys, like they were bullied horrendously. I, and I participated in that because I grew up in a very like boys are boys environment. And I know it's still not safe for a lot of people. I don't even feel safe. In really, and I'm very like mask presenting, as you can see. And I don't want to be in that space because people are going to comment on my body and people are going to ask me why I'm not married. And I don't have fucking time for that anymore. I love aunties and uncles. I love them. We get along. It's great, but I just, I can't do it. It's difficult. And like you said, you had to walk away from that and separate yourself from your community in order to be able to get to this point. And that is such a scary point. Like it's terrifying to do this. The hard, (laughs) it's been hard. Yeah. The hardest part is losing community. Yeah. I, I can't imagine in a sense, just because this is not what I was raised around, but I think especially as people of color, there is so much of our lives that centers around this community and religion and safety. And when you are even a little bit outside of that, you tend to try to force yourself to fit this mold. And when you realize you can't anymore, it is not just losing a couple of friends from high school. (laughs) It is losing access to everything and everyone that is culturally relevant to you that you love. And I'm not sure how that separation was possible for you. I don't know many South Asian people, but my understanding of South Asian culture is that tend to stick together (laughs) in a lot of ways, community wise, and based on religion as well, correct? Yeah. And that's definitely true. So like side note, (laughs) a little bit about me is that I also, I grew up with a lot of internalized racism because I moved schools when I was quite young and I moved from a super diverse neighborhood to a super white neighborhood. And I was the only brown kid in my class. So I got bullied, I don't know, for five or six years straight. And I had so much internalized racism that that was something I had to also unlearn around the time I was 30. So like I'm doing these, like I'm unlearning both the internalized racism and the like very monogamous like way of living and getting into polyamory. But I used to hate brown people. I used to hate other brown people. I didn't want to be around them. I was embarrassed. And part of that journey, so when I walked away from the religious community and in some ways started working on boundaries with my family, which are impossible to improve, like it's just the life struggle for me. I really did gravitate and intentionally start building community like brick by brick with people that look like me. 
people that like I want to have so many friends that are queer and colored and fat and just like everything you know and I was reflecting this week and I'm like oh like I like I have that it's not huge but I have the people I need in my life and I'm so grateful it's not the same and I I do want to explore more queer spaces like spaces for Muslims like United Mosques and things like that there's a whole timing to it it has to feel right it's still a little scary I can imagine that. So let's start at boundaries with family, right? Because I think, and this is me saying a lot of things that are going to be triggering to some people, communities of color don't do boundaries the same way that white people do. And especially when you live in places like the US and even like in certain parts of Europe, whatever, that are more white centric, they focus a lot on individuality and not as much on the community part of things. Mm -hmm. And so boundaries for white people in their families are not the same as boundaries for people of color in their families. And so I wanted to say that. And even like boundaries for Americans who are white are not the same as boundaries for Jamaicans who are white, because culture is a huge also part of that. The best analogy I have for understanding boundaries with BIPOC people is imagine you're in your bedroom, like your private bedroom, as in as whatever age you are right now as an adult and you're masturbating and you're completely naked and your parents don't knock and they walk into your room. So imagine that in every aspect of your life, that kind of intrusion, that's the kind of boundaries that don't exist. And it's an expectation that, Mm -hmm. that everyone deserves to have this level of access to every part of your life. And it's a huge violation of privacy, but because your parents do it and like role model it, like everyone else thinks it's okay. So like family get togethers, the cousins and the other aunts and uncles, it's just modeled. So yep. listen yep. up, it, white it, folks. It's one thing I picked up in therapy as well. They're always like, oh, we have to set boundaries with your family. I was like, what are you talking about? You don't understand. Um, the boundary is that I'm private and some parts of my life are private. Like the, the boundary is not the way that you think of boundaries. Yeah. So I, I think that's something I, I want to say out loud for other people listening that who may not be in the same situation. Like yeah. boundaries for people of color are very different <laughs> when it comes to family. And you get a lot of pushback from people who are raised in those very individualistic ways who don't understand. And also you get pushback from inside your community when you're trying to not be secretive, just have something that is yours and only yours, even if it's just for a little while. But why aren't you sharing it with me? Why aren't you telling me everything? I don't understand. Why are you keeping secrets? It's not a secret. I, for everyone knows I'm shady. That's just, that's a thing that I am in real life. I keep a lot of things close to the vest. (laughs) And so my family has learned that I have always been this way. I've always kept a lot of things close to the vest. And I have instead learned how to selectively share information that's not as important to me to foster closeness with other people. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's a double life, but not. And I feel like every person of color is battling the same sort of thing. Like, how do you have this double life? Totally. (laughs) And... I get it. I was going to add that like generationally at least, but even our, our age people, like they're more sensitive. They're hypersensitive when you try and lay down boundaries or talk about boundaries or mental health or all of that. Like the walls are up. And I think it's, there's so much generational shit, generational trauma that hasn't been healed as well. But I just wanted to add that on because it's like, it's dramatic. I don't know. Like in my family, I got into so many fights in the last year just trying to have boundaries 
and there were like unnecessary fights because people are sensitive. And I'm not the most sensitive when I deliver like a boundary because I'm probably at my nth degree to deliver it. I get that. That <laughs> you yeah. have to be at the nth degree to operate in this space. You do. <laughs> in a sense. And, and everything you're saying like is so true. Like the double life. And if you're non-monogamous or you're polyamorous and you're involved in your religious community, like the two lifestyles, they don't always coexist. Like they don't play nice together because you only bring one person to the religious space. You know, you only bring one person to the family space when it's Christmas or whatever. Ironically, I'm saying Christmas. That's the most important. That's the biggest gathering in my family just because we can all meet. So Christmas <laughs> is a big deal. If you bring someone to Christmas, there's like maybe two people in my family that know I'm non-monogamous or polyamorous. And they don't seem to really want to get into it or it's hard for them. But I had a debate recently about who do I bring to Christmas? And I was just like, what if I have a friend that's an ex? That I want to bring to Christmas because they're still someone I love so much but that's coded language because that means that's actually probably my partner and we broke up and y'all don't know we're still fucking and together yeah but she's just <laughs> a friend that I really like and I'll bring my girlfriend mm -hmm. that's the kind of coded language you have to speak to the people who like know and to everyone else it's I'm just not dating I'm gonna get caught I know I'm gonna get caught <laughs> I was just gonna say I was like one of these days I feel like you're gonna slip a little bit and something Honestly. someone's gonna ask a question and they're not gonna want to know the answer but you're gonna tell them and they're gonna wish they never asked and like I do not speak to anyone in my family I do not tell them I have a partner everyone else and their mom knows but it just opens up so many other lines of questioning that will be uncomfortable for polyamory Folks. I have a question. What kind of questions do you expect to get? So for example, say you and I are partners. I'm one of your, we'll say you have four, just for the sake of this conversation. Yeah. I'm one of yeah. your four partners. I'm a newer one, whatever. Sure. Yeah. I'm new to this thing. I don't really know how your family and your cultural structure works, but I'm learning. I'm trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And they find out about me. What kind of questions would they ask you? If they found out that you and I were dating? Yeah. They would get us both right away on the relationship escalator. So they would come in. I mean, it's pretty strategic. So everyone's pretty nice in my family. So lots of smile. If you were stuck in a room with them, they'd ask you about your job and what you do. And then they'd be like, yeah, so if you have kids, you thought about marriage or what are you doing with this? Yeah. There's no like boundaries on what could be asked. So like the last two visits I had with two separate aunts and uncles, like my dating life came up within the first three rounds of questioning. And because of the way I'm at, like, in my first, with the first aunt and uncle, I was just actually like, I'm not really dating. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty happy being alone or whatever. And then the other one, I was just like, yeah, I'm like dating so much. I'm dating like five people at the same time. And I'm just like so sarcastic that, I don't know, that's how it comes out. Yeah. That's how that, it comes out. Uh, you would be it, asked stuff like that. Or they would ask me like job, job, education, family, all the most important things. What And then like future plans. Are you serious? Oh. Are you serious? Are you serious? Is it serious? Because as soon as someone meets family, they have to be serious. That was always a thing for me. Like I would never, my mother would know who my partners were, but yeah. they would never interact with her much. And so yeah. if they come to the family birthday parties and things like that, then she knows, okay, this is a thing that's happening. And I'll tell this funny story, which some people may remember, some people went out. How did I come out to my mother that I was polyamorous? So I came out to her as bisexual when I was in my late teens early 20s because I was dating someone that she knew. To be fair, though, 
they weren't the same age. <laughs> they just happened to work together. And I forgot that point. And so I had a couple that I was seeing and they were such great friends of mine. Of course, they were at our house all the time. Every time I went to Jamaica to visit, because they lived in Jamaica, they would come to my house like within hours of me touching down. And we'd all just be hanging out all the time. Yeah. <laughs> One time, it was my sister's birthday. We went out, got drinks, and then came back to the house. Mm-hmm. And so they were there. And of course, I'm a little tipsy, little amorous. So like I'm holding hands with the <laughs> wife. And then I think I did something, not like anything sexual, but something obviously intimate with the husband. And this is yeah. in front of my family. So my aunt yeah. has no idea what's going on. All this stuff is happening. And so when everyone leaves, I said to my mom, oh, by the way, I'm dating both of them. She's like, they're married to each other. And I was like, yeah, we're together. (laughs) (laughs) I love the smile on your face. Like all of us. We're all together. And it's okay. And so she had to like wrap her mind around that. And Uh so the last time I came to Jamaica before we had broken up, they didn't arrive right away. And she was like, is everything okay with you all? They didn't come over today. Is something wrong? Are they... Did you guys break up? But I was like, no, mom, they just couldn't come over today. I'm going to see them tomorrow. And she was like, oh, I just wanted to make sure. I just want to make sure you're okay, that they're not shutting you out. She's worried because they're married to each other. Like, where do Mm -hmm. I fit into this dynamic? Mm -hmm. Very sweet lady. But she's just like, eventually, you know, them and I broke up. We're still all great friends. But it was just so funny that I was just like, yeah, tipsy me doesn't care. Everyone can get these kisses. Everyone can get this (laughs) feel up in front of my family. It's fine. I love everyone. but. Yeah, she doesn't ask me about the relationship escalator anymore. Like when I was younger, maybe. But now she knows I'm more likely to just show up pregnant than I have to show up with a partner of some sorts. I just be like, surprise, I I made a baby. So here's your grandchild going inside of me. Surprise. (laughs) So according to my family at the moment, my partner and I are not together. We're broken up. We are together. But because they're just, they're close with my family and we all go visit sometimes. We'll go visit the parents with the dog. And I have, I have to be so careful that I'm not like putting my hand on her leg or just like kissing her because this is the double life. And my mom will always just be like, oh, you should get back together. I'll just be passing her in the kitchen. She's like, you should get back together. And I'll like, you know, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm passing her in like another room. She's like, you should get back together. Like, just it. like a, a little whisper. Like, just like it's just a, whisper. a seed. That's yeah. a thought so that you should think about. Like every area that we can, like you should get back together. And I'm just like, if only you knew. So does, of course, your partner is going along with this double life in a sense. Is that something that has been a tension point for you? It's okay if you don't want to talk about it. That's totally fine. I just. No, I'm okay to talk about it. Like they've been amazing. So my partner is white. And I think everything culturally still takes time to understand, especially like expectations. So we've been together just around four years And she's still learning about like how intense it is in my family. You know, there's always like a new lesson and I'm trying to share as much as I can. I think the more she gets it, the more open she is to support me for as long as I decide to do it. And I think if I was deciding to like share with my family, she would also support me. So that's been nice. And, you know, they're sharing with their family members in a way that works for them with some of them, but like, I can't yet and to be fair i share things with my parents like when i turned 30 it was really important for me to share things with my parents that i think like i wanted them to see me in a way that was honest and true i love them we're close but you know i never always felt like there was like enough that they knew about me because i was a little cagey Mm -hmm. and shady like you say yeah um but 
that started me just like opening up to them about things like relationships and sex and the fact that I want to get into sex education because it's so important. And a big part of that was how I grew up. So I drop these little bombs on them every year. There's usually one or two. And there's a little, I think their ability to handle it is like making me not want to drop another one about polyamory because like I can't handle another big fallout. It's a little tough. I come from a family that like almost everyone doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, like anti everything. And then we joke about sex all the time. You know, it's dirty joke central when we get together, but no one wants to talk about sex. Yeah. It's such an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Where we can make these lots of filthy jokes about sex, but no one actually is talking about it. Like we can't have a serious conversation about actual sex and what it's like having sex. I don't get it. I mean, I get it, but also in the back of my head, I'm always like, but if we're talking about it, why we, why can't we actually talk about it? Even some people that I know that I grew up with, they didn't get to grow up religious, but there's still that little wall, that screen where it's, we can't actually talk about sex with each other. We can yeah. only tell dirty jokes, but yeah. an actual conversation about even something as simple as, damn, like I tried this position and it really strained my hamstring. And I was really upset yeah. about that. I can't even say that because I'd be like, oh, Jen, why are you telling us these things? I thought we were talking like this is something that happened to me like yesterday. I need to talk about how the fact that my leg is in pain. That's why I can't walk so far. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And those are the best kinds of friendships. Like my, one of my best friends, he's Muslim and he's gay. And we spent so much time together, like in my twenties that if it wasn't for him telling me about, like, he just didn't always have an outlet. I became his outlet about his dating life. So if he didn't tell me about next week's date where he needs to find rope and to tie him up and beat him up with, or he didn't tell me about all the shit that he's doing, I wouldn't be this far along on my journey of polyamory, that's for sure. Because I wasn't open to discussing it. I didn't have a practice of it. It wasn't in my, like body and you and I want to talk about it with my friends I love talking about it so let's talk more about the rope situation though that was a little intriguing so is that something that you do also I just I just curious for oh, the listeners that's a really good question I went to my first like ropes class a couple months ago and I want to go back so I really liked the vibe I'm in this part of my life where I'm like exposing myself to different communities and seeing what I like. And then I'm like, okay, I want to spend more time here. So I want to go back into ropes and learn like shibari. So I might take a course soon. My friend was definitely not doing shibari. He was literally going to tie this guy up and punch him. So <laughs> pre I don't yuck. I don't, I don't yuck anyone's yum. If that's what you're into, that's what you're into. It's a yeah. kind of impact play. So shout out to y'all. So <laughs> that was that- why it was so jarring. <laughs> Yeah. It was like, okay, I guess if someone likes to be punched, you can go ahead and do that. I think my questions would then develop into where exactly are you punching them? Are you punching them in like sensitive areas or just no, like in general no, body like, blows? Body, yeah. or just I was practicing like punching my arm. So I was like, <laughs> what are you doing? He's like, I have a date tonight. I have a date. Let me punch you. <laughs> yeah. He's, just, he's like, how much does this hurt? And I was like, like, okay, a little. And he's like, okay, like, how's this? And I was like, okay, that's a bit more. What are you doing? What is your objective here? Yeah, I have seen that before, though, at a play party. They tied her up and then he punched her ass a lot. And yeah. not like fisting, but like he punched her ass. And I was like, oh, that yeah. was so interesting. Just because that's not that. a, like that's not a kind of impact play that I, ever really crosses your mind if you're not exposed to the lifestyle. Yeah, I, I've I, been asked I, to do that. Interesting. And Did you enjoy it? I derive my pleasure from other people. So yeah, when they enjoyed it, yeah. Like the first time someone asked me to choke them, I was just like, what the what the fuck? I was so scared. And now because it's pleasurable for people, I'm like, I'm open to it. There's always a conversation. I'm always happy 
to work within what people are happy, like what their boundaries are. But yeah, it was hot. When someone reacts to like the butt punch, it's like a spank where you just make a fist. It was weird, but they were yeah. really like, what's the word? Like the ping sensation. Yeah. The right word. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. No, that, it's just, it's curious. So this is a, another part of your identity, right? Where it's, you derive pleasure from your partner's pleasure. You're exploring these other elements of kink along with it. So yeah. how far along were you on that kink side of the journey? Is that still fairly new to you? Yeah. Or So even when it comes to sex, I was like certain up until the age of 25, when I lost my virginity, that I was only going to have sex once I was married. That's what I believed growing up. Like I was, I watched a lot of Bollywood. There were all the other like familial and community. So I was just like, I'm going to find the one and we're going to fuck tons. No, that's not what happened. So once I started like exploring my actual like sexuality, my sex life, I didn't have the words for it, but then it was like, oh, I'm into BDSM or I'm into kink and I'm really into exploring my fetishes and other people's. So I would say in the last, again, maybe two or three years, have I like actively been exploring, you know, what I like in the bedroom with partners and with my partner, like, and what works for us. The dom sub dynamic has been like really fun, been able to actually like explore that tons, toy, like going to ropes together or like different, there's a bunch of places that I want to check out in the city. But most of these poly spaces are just filled with white folks. Yeah. Spaces where it's a bit more open and friendly. I want to start (laughs) setting them up too. I really love to. The more people I meet, I'm always just, because it doesn't have to be just like a space for polyamory. These can all intersect. And I'm finding some where there's BIPOC folks that are just like all kinds of everything. And some of them happen to be polyamorous. And I'm like, cool. I want to spend more time there. So. Yes. No, that makes perfect sense. I can tell you I've just started my kink journey in a way because i what i talk about what i did before i was like no it's just stuff that you usually do with partners y'all do some breath play you do some impact play you tie people up use candle wax doesn't everyone do that when they're exploring with someone that they think they're going to be with and everyone was like not all the time and i was like oh that was us all the time like we were planning to be together forever we had to try things to see if we liked them we tried some stuff and i tried something new in november which was electro play with a violent wand. That was very interesting. So I really enjoy that. And I was like, I can never have one of these in my house. I'll just be sitting here all the time, just like doing this to myself. I can never own one in my home. This has to be like a special occasion. This has to be a treat. Okay. And I'm also very aware of my own body and my own experiences in the sense where for people at home, I'm talking about self-harm very briefly. Thank you very much. I used to self-harm a lot when I was younger. And so it's something I stopped doing when I was in my late teens, early twenties, but it was like a solid decade, at least of just like doing that and having a lot of issues with my body in terms of eating disorder things, which of course still happens to this day. Thank you. Socialization for making almost all women in this world have an eating disorder, but there's a lot of these things that are not triggers for me, but things I'm hyper aware of that I could abuse if I was not careful. So I saw someone doing needle play the other day and I was like, that looks really exciting. I can never do that because that is a thing for me that I know like that would push me over the edge into self-harm territory as opposed to just something fun and enjoyable for the moment. Because even if I would at my limit, I know I would want to push it to to get that sensation that I'm used to having from previous experience. And again, I haven't done this 
in maybe 12, 13 years, but I'm still, it's always a part of you in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm very careful about what kind of kinks I'm exploring and like how I'm exploring them and who I'm exploring them with people who actually know me, who I feel safe with, who will be like, even if you're not saying stop, we need to stop now because I can tell that there is a different headspace yeah. happening here for you. Yeah. So I really like it. your, th- thank you for sharing. And I, I really like your articulation because people listening to you can hear that you're on a journey to find pleasure, but you are also balancing like the boundaries of your own body and your past experience and like listening to your body. So that's, that's amazing. That's really amazing. People need to hear that. I'll be trying. That's all I can say is like, I try and that's Mm. the best that I can do for myself and the best I can do for the people that I'm playing with, because then it puts them in a position where they are unsafe because I'm not respecting my own physical limitations or my own mental boundaries. So and it helps if they can tell that you're in a, if you change headspaces and they know when to stop like that or give you a breather, like those are the best kinds of people to explore with. It's on the list. Like I'm trying to get better at it. I'm trying to get yeah. more out there and explore more in these spaces. Sorry. I know I can go off on a tangent, so don't mind me. Part of my comfort is just to be in a conversation with you because I think how nervous I was coming into this, but you've made me yeah. feel really, really comfortable coming into this very nervous. So... There's never a reason to be nervous on the monogamish pod because I don't have people on here who I don't like in a sense. Everything that I do on this podcast is just highlighting you and your experience Mm -hmm. and talking shit about mine if it fits the conversation, (laughs) if that makes sense. But overall, it's to show you in the best possible light and your journey and your experience because it can help someone else. Like you said, like you think I do this very important work. I think everyone who agrees to come on this podcast is doing the exact same work because they're sharing parts of themselves that maybe other people in their lives don't know. And I think it's important that we're having conversations with quote unquote everyday people and not polyamorous celebrities or not people who've been doing this in the game for 20 years when it was just called that thing that people do or there was no labels for it. I think that we need to talk to everyone from all cultures and experiences in the BIPOC space to talk about what polyamory looks like for you. Yeah. And honestly, like just to put it out there, one of the reasons I was so nervous to come on was because there is a territory that I'm in as a consent sex educator who wants to advocate for Muslims where there's a bit of, there's a bit of danger to that. Like I've been warned by like people who know I'm doing this work to watch out for like my safety and my family's safety. Like I'm legitimately always thinking about that before I engage. And that's why I'm so careful how I engage and how I put myself out there. But even using a pseudonym today, I hate to do it because I want to be myself. I want to be authentic, but it's more important for me to be here with you to talk about this stuff so other people feel seen and to know that there's a space to talk about. And there's so many people struggling with this identity brown folk who like to have sex. And who may not want to be with one person, like just make a big banner. Yeah. And so is it people like within the community who are like, hey, you got to be careful talking about this stuff because we don't do this? When I talk about the Muslim community, just for you or folks that don't know, there's two major branches, the Sunni and the Shia. And the majority are Sunni and the minority are Shias. And in these two communities, there's a difference of opinion on like leadership structure I won't get into that, but most of what in the media is usually Sunni Muslim practice. So look at Miss Marvel, for example. Really cool. She's played by a Shia Muslim actress, 
and she's playing a Sunni Muslim on the screen, which is really interesting. But oh. it was all Sunni. Like the whole family was very much personified through the Sunni lens, which is fine. That's not what I want to get into. But within each of these two major groups, there's tons of communities of practice, let's say. And everyone differs in whether they're left or right. So the safety aspect comes from people who are quite extremist who don't will never agree with this message. So I'm thinking about things like, can I talk about polyamory openly and like out myself with my real name and still travel to certain places in the world? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. Like, I'm not going to do it. And I, and I sometimes I do travel for my work, but I'm not, I don't know. Like, that's the kind of stuff I have to consider. Or if, is my address online or is anything online? And is my family safe? If someone wants to like get at me for things I'm spewing they don't believe in or mm -hmm. the community I'm part of, if I talk about this really openly, people who live in another country where people are oppressed, that's going to be an issue for them. So there's all these different things to think about that just comes with the reality, but there's such a fear factor and I'm sure I'm not the only one to experience it. No, absolutely not. You're not the first person that I've spoken to who has this experience. The other question I want to ask you is, is all of your immediate family in the Toronto area as well, or are some still in Southeast Asia? Oh yeah. Everyone's yeah. immediate family. Everyone's pretty much here, but all over Canada extended all over England, the States. We're so far removed from like India in terms of generations and travel that like we, we don't have too much family there or like we're not in touch with them too much. Mm -hmm. Like some well, family. Yeah. It's interesting. So the reason why I ask that is because my mother's family came from India to Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And so my great grandmother married a black Methodist minister and then had my grandmother and so on and so forth. And building this whole separate life in a whole other country that was not where her family was from. And so it's interesting because I have zero connection to that side of my heritage in a way. I find myself wondering in a way, like how different my life would have been if this was a part of that, you know, would I even exist? I mean, the answer is probably no, but like, you know, would I still somehow end up being me if I had this other cultural element that I had to contend with in a way. Mm -hmm. And I have close friends who are more connected to their Indian cultural practices. Because of course, you no, know, I'm from the Caribbean. I'm from Jamaica. A lot of Indians in the Caribbean, a lot of Chinese people in the Caribbean. We can go into whole colonialism, slavery. We don't have to. But even some of the things that like one of my good friends, his grandmother was just like, oh no, you don't bring any monkeys around here. And she's referring to black girls. Like you only date what? other Indian girls. That's the thing. You cannot ever do that. And this is, remember, it's his grandmother. He's my age. He's in his mid thirties as well. Yeah. And so this is someone who is not that much yeah. older in a sense. And so that kind of anti-blackness rhetoric there, but also even culturally, like they're not Muslim. They don't practice Hinduism. They're very much just kind of like their own element in the Caribbean. But mm -hmm. what does that look like? I keep, thinking about how even your family's religion that they no longer practice shapes how they've raised you and the mm -hmm. culture that you're raised in your family unit and how you relate to the outside world and how when you add polyamory or any kind of not the norm quote unquote identity how that can shift things minutely for you as a human even not having been raised that way i feel like i rambled a lot but i kind of felt like you got you what know, i was saying you know like 
I'm not even going to lie. So I had family from overseas visit last month and I spent like a whole day with my aunt and uncle. And one of the things that they grilled me on even more than my dating life, we spent a lot of time on my dating life. I got grilled on my religion. I literally got grilled on my state of religion, which is no one's business. But this is what I mean. This is what we're talking about when it comes to boundaries. Like my private religion was being like interrogated and I had to stand up for it. And I'm talking about like over an hour, like getting really heated into a debate. And I'm just, and then like, how do I tell these people I'm polyamorous? There's no way. Fucking I mean, way. will they understand if you were polygamous? This is also like my working No, that. yeah, that's a really good point. No, because no one does polygamy that I know of in my community. Like, it's just not a thing. Like, I think, I think it really depends on where you live in the world where the practice, first of all, like people turn a blind eye or whatever. But as far as I know, like, it's just not a thing. And that's practiced like by my community, at least. I don't want to speak for other communities. And if it is, it's on the DL, but no one's posting these pages of the Quran being like, I, I pass, I'll pass. And then what about other people? <laughs> like, why can't, if, if it's polygamy, why can't women have four husbands? Or let's talk about religion and inclusive spaces for trans people and everyone. Like, they just don't exist. And if they do exist, it's not a religious space. Like they're going to the bars and they're meeting people that make them feel safe. Or it's maybe this place is like United Mosques or things like that or more private spaces. And I hope they exist. But um, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. If you're a dude that's Muslim that's like able to tell everyone you're polyamorous, everyone's going to be like, probably, yeah, thumbs up. But if if it's switched, you're screwed. Your reputation's down the drain, especially if you're female identifying or non-member. It's crazy. Like... As soon as things get flipped, if someone finds a sincere like connection to their faith, all good for them. And they really want to do this thing according to the Quran. Do you? But as far as I know, like practically, it's not really. Yeah, it's not a thing. Okay. And if some of your listeners know of places, or that'd be really interesting if they do know places where polygamy is like A-OK and practice frequently, but that'd be interesting to hear. I love learning this stuff. Yeah, no, I definitely, I have a lot of questions that I need to ask people who are Muslim and polygamous. So that's, there are months people to talk to, but mm-hmm. it's so funny that a lot of people that I know of who are in the nation of Islam and <laughs> polygamous are black people. It's, it's mm-hmm. so curious. Oh, so, right. And so that's a whole other element that I, I need to talk about with some other people. <laughs> but I, I have a lot of thoughts about that cannot be shared on this podcast just yet without having a conversation with those people first. We can but, regroup. <laughs> we can regroup. But what I will say is that if you watch some of those like Seeking Sister Wife shows where, and you kind of see how the polygamy plays out in those dynamics, it is curious. Okay. And, and curious is how I will phrase this for now okay. until we get more context. But I guess my question for you now is how are you living and loving now? I know that you've really started this polyamorous exploration and we're still in a panorama we're still in a panini. We're still in a Panasonic. We're in this pandemic. COVID-19 is still a thing. Monkeypox is out here trying to kick our asses. And I'm like, listen, I've been vaccinated against smallpox. Can't you leave me alone? That's not what I want for my life. Mm-hmm. But how has the pandemic specifically affected your exploration and your living and loving status? This was happening probably in practice during the pandemic. So a lot of it happened in discussion and theoretically so a lot of it like internally theoretically being like i'm ready and just getting to that point where i'm ready to meet people when 
I wasn't always partnered up, but when I was partnered up, my, I would consider, I'm not, I'm non-hierarchical, but my partner, I'd consider them my anchor partner. So we, safety was the biggest thing. Like what the main things we want to know if we do meet people like as safely as possible is, are they STI tested regularly? How often are they COVID tested regularly? Are they vaccinated? And how many partners do they have? And how many partners do their partners have? Because that's where it's really hard to keep track. And what's your level of exposure? And the reality is when we were at really high levels of COVID and not quite lockdown, but close to lockdown, I just wouldn't be seeing people. And if I would be seeing people, I would only be seeing like maybe one or two regular partners with the understanding that like, we're just seeing each other for now. And as things become safer, like we're okay to open up more. So it was a lot of that. It was a lot of like periods of isolation, like living alone, being alone, or if someone gets sick, like a partner gets sick, like you're just not going to see each other for a month because we're just trying to keep each other safe. So it's been hard, yeah. but it's been a really good journey. Like this has been probably the most I've dated as non-monogamous polyamorous. Okay. So of course you're not hierarchical, but you said that you lived with your partner, correct? Previously. Previously. Okay. Yeah. All right. Because I... Not currently, because I, I do want to say that we acknowledge that there is some hierarchy at play once you live with someone. Even if you are not hierarchical, there is like a physically sharing space and doing life together does tend to a different kind of hierarchy. Yeah. So there's that. So currently you're living solo. Mm-hmm. And do you currently only have one person you consider a partner with some comet style dynamics or... I'm just trying to set the scene for people who may be interested so they know what's going yeah. on. Yeah, I think that... That's the other thing I'm learning is the, what articulation works for me. So like I have an anchor partner and then some people, the language of partner comes to me naturally if I've been seeing them maybe for a bit longer or it just slips out. But I really like to think of the people in my life as like friends for first and foremost that are sometimes lovers that are sometimes very regular connection. And some there are definitely comments in my life all around. The thing about polyamory that I love is that it gives me the flexibility to be as available as I want when I have the capacity and be really honest and forthcoming about what kinds of connections I'm seeking and like also respectfully work on me when I need to. And it's a spider web. I'm in a spider web. Someone you have a breakup and the whole everyone feels it. It really depends on how far they are, how close they are, how much you see them. So I guess the question now that people need to know is, are you open to making connections with new people? Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm going into a period where I'm a lot more open, <laughs> definitely, and, I, and love making connections. Again, it's still you're flexing a new muscle to be able to like say that out loud when I just said in the previous sentence that I have an anchor partner. But that's the love of it. That's the beauty. And there's so much... I think polyamory is for people that you love. Yes. And of course, we acknowledge that there's different types of love. I have always wanted a husband and a wife because I was like, why would I want just one? That seems stupid. That doesn't seem like it makes sense to me. And so exploring that as I've gotten older, I realized none of my intimate relationships, friendships or otherwise fit the mold of what most cishet modern normative people believe they should look like. Like my life partner, the person I do life with has been my best friend since we were 12 years old. And the idea of seeing her in a sexual way makes me want to gouge my eyes out and vomit. Mm-hmm. And she feels the same way about me, <laughs> but we are life partners and we do life together. We make decisions together. Mm-hmm. And she just got married recently. Shout out to my wife. becoming a whole wife, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's Congrats. just, it's so interesting when 
people are just like, oh, like you guys must have been fucking or whatever. I'm like, no, we just do life together. Like we just be together. That's it. Like there's no sex here. Like we don't have sex with each other. That's gross. It would be like fucking my sibling, but she's my wife and we just do life together. So I, and, and all of my close intimate friendships are the same. Like there are no boundaries between what is platonic or considered romantic, et cetera, et cetera. If I want to call up one of my best friends who is gay and be like, I'm going to take you out to dinner. I'm going to wine and dine you tonight. That's not something that's reserved only for my romantic partner. Yeah. To sleep why? With. why? That's the thing, right? You want to have that intimacy with anyone. Right. I just, I build intimate connections with people and I care for them and I love them. And I tell them I love them. And for people who are in this room, it makes them uncomfortable sometimes. They're just like, you mean, do you love me? Love me. Or I'm like, I love you. Like, I love you. That's all that matters. I'm not, you want me to know if I'm in love with you or not? No, maybe tomorrow, but not today. And I allow those feelings to flow in and out as what they are. And I think it's always been weird to some people how I practice my friendships, but I'm like, polyamory doesn't just mean romantic and sexual partners. It also includes like the community that you build around that. All the intimate relationships in your life are a part of your polycule. Yeah. When I... Like, I love 110%. Like, I'm ride or die for the people in my life. And the reason polyamory is so easy or feels so right for me is because I've been doing that for everyone in my life, my whole life, regardless of their gender, whether we're romantic or we have sex. Like, I'm just there. And that's why I enjoy it so much. And it works for me. But it's the same thing that you're saying. And so I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday, and she had her 10-year-old daughter with her. And... She goes, listen to what she says when I ask her this question. And she goes, okay, who does mommy love the most? And you know what her daughter says? Her daughter goes, mommy loves whoever she's talking to at that moment the most. And I just like crumbled. And I'm like, that's the best articulation I've ever heard of how I want to be operating. Like everyone I talk to, if I'm looking at you and talking, I love you the most. Like you have my everything. And you bring it to everyone. Why not your friends? Wine and dine your friends. Like, it just, yeah. I want to live my life. Exactly. I don't want to reserve intimacy for just people that I want to, like, sleep with. I don't want to do that. Exactly. I don't think I need to do that. I think that if my friend needs a cuddle, I can cuddle them. And be like, it's Mm. okay. If they need that physical touch and support, I can do that for them. I don't need to be like, oh, you should call your husband. Because, you know, these people, they get a little upset when people be touching. No. And I think that's one thing that BIPOC communities have done really well in the sense of that as much as in the church context, because that's from my experience, it's very much like your husband should be your lover, your best friend, et cetera, et cetera. There is still a community outlet for you where you go to church and you have community with other people. And I find that in some subsets that marriage can be so isolating from what I've observed from people, because they're not allowed to build other intimate relationships outside of their romantic and legal union. When really, don't you got church friends? Don't you got people that you enter into like intimate religious worship space with? Yeah. Aren't those people that you continue community? Like, I understand to a certain extent, having been raised in a cishet patriarchal monarchical society. I understand the boundary that some people put between friendship and romantic and sexual dynamics because we've been taught that it's one or the other. (laughs) And when the lines blur, things get complicated. So I understand people wanting to clearly isolate 
certain members of their friend group from their romantic spaces. But I think part of that is fear because you love the person. And if you integrate them in the way that feels most natural to you, it will appear too romantic for other people. Mm-hmm. And that's like my full blown, like understanding of the situation. There are some people that I love very deeply and I know that they can never love me in the same way or close to the same realm or accept my love in a certain kind of way, because for them, they are still very much partitioned. Like platonic means I cannot feel, I cannot love you. Platonic means I cannot love you the way that you love me. When I'm just like, no, it doesn't mean I want to marry you. It doesn't mean I want to have your babies. You're cute, but you're not that cute. Like the idea of having a baby right now would be very distressing to me. But it means that they have to close off themselves at certain points emotionally with people that they genuinely care for in order to honor this romantic sexual dynamic that they have on the other side of things because of mononormativity and <laughs> this idea yeah. that relationships have to flow a certain way. Yeah, and, and honestly, mononormativity is just killing everything. It's just like it's because it's you mix that with the fear and the hypocrisy and people just not being like doing inner work, like not everyone's doing their like internal work, getting in touch with what's important and why, all of that. Like you talking made me think of a whole bunch of things I wanted to I had some questions for you and I had some like thoughts and some information. So can I just spew a few things out? Yeah, of course. I have a question for you. So you yourself personally, and then generally with your sense of the polyamorous communities that you work with, or like, what's the take on folks who are polyamorous and religious? Would you date someone that's religious or that has a big religious practice in their life? Um, and I'm curious about what the state of affairs is like on that, because is that a hindrance for some People practice their faith, their spirituality. For some, it is. For some, it is a hindrance. And I think that the issue ties into other parts of polyamory that don't fit, right? Where people who are religious and polyamorous are the people who are in cishet marriages who are exploring polyamory. And so there is that inherent hierarchy that exists where it sometimes they lean a lot into the that cishet mononormative hierarchy and it feels exclusionary like you say we're doing polyamory and that you love me but you seem like you're using me as a sex toy kind of thing so for some people they've had like traumatic experiences in that way and i i appreciate that but i find that religion isn't talked about as much in the communities that i'm a part of and for me i have no issue dating someone who's religious Mm -hmm. because as long as we understand and respect each other like if this is if you want me to go with you to your version of a service once. It doesn't mean that I won't do it. I will absolutely do it. But for me, I need like context. I'm like, this is a huge part of your life. Is this something that I can safely be a part of? Do I need to convert to this thing? Because right now I'm not religious at all. And if conversion is mandatory, that's not something I'm going to do without me deciding this is what's the best fit for me. So personally, I have no issues doing that. And that means that, but we have to have conversations about what that looks like for us. Do things change for us in our dynamic? Do you expect certain things because of your religion or because I am not religious? Do you expect certain things of me that you feel I should be obligated to give you? I don't like being told what to do sometimes, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) not like that. In the right. So there's that. Exactly. Yeah. You may, so you made me think of something like the way we're raised as Muslims, even myself, like I was raised 
to basically want to marry only within my community, which is a very, it's a very like narrow pool of people. Like we're a big community, but there's only so many options. And I was grown up with this like programming that everything is better when you're married to someone that's the same faith, religion, and your kids can practice. It just makes it easier when you have kids. And there's a lot of mixed race families and mixed faith families in my family. And it's been really interesting because if you grow up like that and then you become polyamorous or non-monogamous, sometimes you might even still be stuck into thinking that, oh, like I can only date other Muslims polyamorously. And that's that's a huge obstacle. That's not going to happen. There's yeah. no app for that. So that would be really interesting. And then one of the reasons I asked you this as well is because even as someone who was very involved in my own religious community and my own faith or my own religion at one point in my life, I don't think I would be able to date someone who's uber religious or involved because I've been there and I know the commitment it takes. And honestly, sometimes it feels like a hindrance or like I have family members that are super involved in their personal faith journey, personal religious journey and their community involvement. And I'm just like, this is crazy. You don't got time for your own family. You don't got time for your own family. And there's like this kind of religious hypocrisy that that comes up because you talk about like, why can't we be friends, ride or die friends for life? Or people in religious spaces are, they have a spiritual intimacy, which is really like really, really deep and really intimate. And they're going to do that every day. And it's just, there's sometimes there's these hypocrisies of what's allowed and what's not. And I think spiritual intimacy is so important if that exists between people. Right? Yeah. And see, and that's why I say I'm open to it, but we have to have a conversation about it. Like, yeah. What are the expectations? What does that look yeah. like? Because I didn't grow up religious. I don't have a framework for that. Mm-hmm. So like you saying, oh, like every day, I was like, every day? Yeah. <laughs> like, that sounds like yeah. a lot. And I think there's so many assumptions about Muslims or people who are religious to begin with. That not every Muslim is practicing. And a lot of people like, like some Muslims are practicing and some practice in their own way that works for them. And it's, and there's so many different ways to practice. Like it's a big religion with lots of different communities of practice. So I think approaching religious people, it's always good to even know what is their practice like. The other thing I was going to bring up, I always think about like, how do we get to this place as a Muslim community? Like, why are we here? I've done a lot of research into like history and there was a a big focus on history through the civilizational societal lens over time where Muslims were living. And one of the things that I read about is that everything was very fluid in Muslim civilizations, like relationships between different genders and the same gender. Like I was reading, I was reading, I just remembered this one book, someone had a wife and then he had a side boyfriend. And this was just like a very normal practice. And it was, there was like a fluidity that existed between like your gender and how you appear and how you present yourself. And this started to actually shift when there was contact with Christians, with white folks, obviously, like through the crusade. So one of the main periods was the crusade. And so like that encounter between the two civilizations, I think if you look at that from maybe the 12th or 13th century and see where we're at now, like. I think there's been a huge impact in how the Muslim world acts towards and around sex. And that's one of the things, right? Like that kind of interaction, like we got totally shut down. And then you add like Indian folks mm-hmm. into the mix, like South Asian Muslims and it's like the Indian mm-hmm. taboos. It's just interesting to see where we're at now. And I don't know if there's anyone doing any work to unpack that or reclaim that. I know most Muslim sex educators 
they'll do it, but it's within, sometimes it's within a really tight framework. Yeah. You kind of have to be like, yeah, I get that. I can understand that. I, the history of religion is obviously definitely more your forte than mine. I only know the basics of anything that's occurred, <laughs> to be honest. Also because I have horrible memory. So I've already checked out of most of the things I learned about these things in school. And yeah. I graduated from college like 12 years ago. So there's also that part mm. as well. But I think it's interesting when we read religious texts and read things that were happening at the time and how they were accepted religiously. But now it feels like everyone's referred to this like puritanical sort of approach to how we should exist. And like even looking at like indigenous practice at the time, like I've had a couple of indigenous people on the podcast and they were talking about how in like reconnecting to their indigenous culture, they found a lot of things like different kinds of gender and sexual expressions were accepted then and how colonialism has ruined everything is just such an interesting thing and how we can completely lose our cultural and religious identity around this other thing that's been done to us and to our ancestors and to our people, as opposed to something that we had an actual role in. Mm -hmm. White people fucked everyone up. Fuck everyone up. Oh my God. Like I hate saying it on the podcast all the time. Everyone knows how I I feel about white people (laughs) and your partner is white. So I'm sure they know how you feel about it. We have the conversations. She knows how I feel. I've lost like really close friendships, but just like straight up because of racism, like people are so fragile and I'm like, I don't have space in my life for this. Like I just don't. So I understand this, but I also don't date white people because it's not just about the one person. It's about their family, their friends. And it's so, it's so funny you talk about this so that because of the whole internalized racism thing, like there was a point in my life where I would not date brown people. I would only date white women. And in the poly scene, most of the people that are around in the city that are polyamorous are white. And it's hard to find colored folks to date who are poly or non-monogamous. But I think in that privilege also comes protection. So we know that white folks can be queer out as poly a lot with a lot more safety than us. But dating white folks who are polyamorous at the start of my journey, especially that there's one or two, so like my partner and like another partner who's a bit comedy, but they've mentored me. Like, so someone who has way more experience, they're white, they're stable in the community, they're stable in their life. They mentored me. They helped me like find part of myself there was a protection there there was something nice that came out of it i still i'm still close to them and it's sometimes yeah like as much of as much as we have issues with white folks like these people are really strong allies that's number one or else i'm not dating them but even with my partner like they're white and they have privilege but there's a certain there's something about that we were going to date regardless i'm convinced we were going to be in each other's lives regardless when you take skin color out of it but like when you put it back in she knows that she sometimes has to protect me in some spaces and she knows that i will legitimately go off at anyone in her spaces if they come up at me i'll do it like she knows it but that's the deal that's the arrangement like i made it really clear like i like i love your family i love your friends but like if someone like says the wrong thing like i'm like i'm going no that's real talk and that's real life so i guess is there any last words you want to share with the audience or if you want to tell them where they can potentially find you on social media, you don't have to, yeah, yeah. but also, and you should also let them know, are the DMs open? <laughs> when you say it like that, 
the DMs are open. The DM, the DMs are open. So I'm going to share my platform that I've started. It's called My Muslim Sex Life, and you can find me mm-hmm. on Instagram. The DMs are open. I'm. It's very new. It's a space where Muslims can ask questions, share stories, share fantasies, and it's an anonymous space. So you can submit those and it'll go up. And it's a space for people to voice something that they don't always get to do. And that's been missing a lot. So please check it out. Any last things? South Asian, Muslim, religious, polyam, non-monogamous folks, if you're curious, you know, do what feels right. Try and reconcile. Do the internal work. Really try and center your rest and your pleasure. Work on your anti-racism. It's all intersectional. Your anti-patriarchy, and your abolition stuff. There's so much good that comes from this space. And it'll take a community to bring folks together that are Muslim and polyam. Like, that's what it'll take. I don't know when it'll happen. We're working on it. I think that this conversation is a good start. I think that once we have made these decisions about what we're trying to do, what we're trying to put forward in the community and have safe spaces for people to express themselves Mm -hmm. that they will come. If you build the space, they will come. I hope everyone comes. That's also something I hope for myself, but I am selfish. So I think about myself first. So I hope I come first. (laughs) Let's hope so too. (laughs) Yes. Of course. Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. And I will speak to you next time. Once again, I would love to thank Shams for joining me on the podcast today. It was such a fabulous conversation. I will put the link to where you can find that Instagram page by Muslim Sex Life in the detailed show notes available at monogamishpod.com. Now, there are other things that have been happening in my world in monogamish pod land, but that's something you really need to concern yourself with. I'll just give you a quick rundown of what occurred. The conversation, Polly After Dark, where we talked about sex and polyamory, went off fantastically. Thank you to everyone who showed up and supported And a lot of questions got answered. A lot of questions were asked. We could have probably talked for two more hours, to be honest, but we had to cap it where we were at. And it was such a great time. So look forward to the next edition of Polly After Dark, maybe in September, maybe in October. I don't know. We'll have to see what schedules allow for Shanae and I. Of course, the other thing you need to remember is the newsletter. The July newsletter will be out on July 31st, giving you the rundown of everything that happened this month on the podcast and maybe also some behind the scenes sneaky bits. That's that's something you should look out for. I have a Patreon episode that's also out at the end of this month. Wow, I'm like super busy for the end of July, right? I did this episode. There's a Patreon episode. There's, you know, the event that happened. There's the newsletter. There's, there's just a lot of good things coming coming down the line. I also did do some restructuring of my Patreon page and tiers and what's available for what tier. So that's something to look at for people who are interested in subscribing to the Patreon, people who are already patrons. You will have seen these changes take into effect today. So there's that. Now let's talk about where you can find the podcast. Like I said, all the details, show notes, and everything Monogamish Pod is available at monogamishpod.com. You subscribe to our Patreon if you want to financially support the podcast and get some nice juicy stuff from me at patreon.com slash monogamishpod. It is an 18 plus platform. That means that you have to be 18. You can't. You have to type it in. Exactly as I said it on the episode. I think we all know that by now. If you want to follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, it's at monogamishpod. 
You can also, 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 always, always, always find me on my personal pages at Happy Met Jen on Twitter, Instagram. I don't really use TikTok as much for like public stuff. So sorry about that. Um, you can also listen to the podcast wherever you get your pods. That is Spotify is my podcast of choice listener, to be honest, because they have a video option now. I don't post the videos for this podcast on Spotify, but it's also because you may have noticed their ads when you listen to this audio and the video is not monetized yet, which I'm not a fan of. So I post the videos on the YouTube channel, the search for Nagos Pod, and you can watch the episodes there, not see my face or the intro and outro because usually I'm like naked or in my pajamas or something. I'm not very attractive for you all, <laughs> but that is an option. It is available if you want to watch the episodes, you can watch it there. I said I prefer to listen on Spotify, but you can also check out Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, listen directly on the Anchor app, Stitcher, Podbean, Podbay, Pod, everything, to be honest. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get them. I love it. I love to read the reviews. It makes me happy. The racist review is not as much, so if y'all could just leave those behind, for those of you who do those, I would appreciate that, just like not having those. But all the other reviews are fantastic. I love to see them. If you want to support the podcast in other ways, you can, of course, support us using Anchor support. So it's anchor.fm slash monogamouspod. Press the support button. You can support us for as low as 99 cents a month. And by us, I mean the band of one that is me and my occasional helpers. So, yeah. Um, I have promised transcripts for a while. They are coming. It just takes a while for me to record, edit the episode, get the transcripts together. Considering I have back transcripts I have to do as well. It's kind of an overwhelming experience, so I do have a friend helping me out with that. But it is slow going because apparently I also have a full-time job and three part-time jobs and I'm working at the same time in addition to doing podcasty stuff. But it is a priority of mine. I just want to let you know it is a priority. I do have like really rough transcripts. Like some stuff, like the text is not quite right. So that's why it needs to be fine-tuned. But just a heads up. So, you know, what's going on with that and with moi. I said anchor support. We also have Monogamish Pod merch. You can get at monogamishpod.threadless.com. I hope you have subscribed to the newsletter, by the way. I mentioned it earlier. We can subscribe at monogamishpod.substack.com. You can get all the monthly juiciness that pops up. Um, there will be a bonus thing included in the newsletter this week because from the event, there is an icebreaker that we asked, which is about like your sexual like bucket list. And I have to include my bucket list item. I'm not going to include anyone else's. I'll include mine in the newsletter this month. And you can be scarred and traumatized just as much as everyone else was. Well, they weren't scarred, but they definitely, the people who know me were just like, yeah, that tracks actually. <laughs> so there is that. I'm trying to think if I have anything else for you. I talked about where you can find me on the socials, watch the video on YouTube, subscribe to the newsletter patreon where you can listen to the podcast monogamouspod.com is there anything i'm missing i feel like i'm always missing something um oh right uh if you want to just donate money to the podcast as you as i've said i run the podcast it's it's me i'm the entity so you can donate money via venmo or cash app to happy met jet like that's it it's it's me it's kind of obvious that there's a photo of me on there and everything but yeah, if you want to support that way, you absolutely can as well. So once again, thank you for joining me listening to this episode. I hope you have a fantastic day and I will catch you next time. Should I tell you what the next episode is going to be about? I don't know yet. I mean, I do, but it's a matter of timing and schedules. And so we'll have to see if I can get the exact interview I want in time for the next episode. If not, I have another one on deck for you, so don't worry about it. 
Once again, I'm Jen. This is a Monogamous Pod. And I hope you have a great day. XOXO. Bye, all. <laughs>